From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast heard on uh, radio in Australia. It's heard on, let me get through this list, Apple, (laughs) Podbean, Audio Boom, Stitcher, and that's all I can remember. But uh, they're they're all, uh, and, and just about every other major podcast platform around the world, uh, great to have your company, and joining me as always is astronomer Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hi, Fred. Hi, Andrew. You might add to that list. It's heard in um, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, San Francisco, Detroit. It's heard in Japan, Canada, New Zealand, Ireland, and Denmark, and indeed the United Kingdom. There you go. I'm very We're doing pleased to well. hear it. That's great news. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for uh, uh, for listening. And uh, we're getting uh, more and more downloads every week. And uh, thanks for all your questions. And today we're going to actually uh, include uh, one or two questions as a part of the uh, program because um, we we like to hear from you. And we're going to you know we usually answer them on Facebook or Twitter or wherever. But today we'll answer them as part of the uh, podcast program. Uh, Now, uh, things we're talking about today, uh, if you're an Australian, you'd know that the the budget was handed down recently. Oh, sorry. Uh, And and, and there's some good news for astronomers, uh, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, Also, um, uh, I'm trying to get my head around this, but um, the uh, final frontier of the frontier fields... Uh, I'm assuming this is in photography because there's a beautiful photograph of uh, a bunch of galaxies there. But uh, we'll talk about that uh, a little later. Uh, But first, Fred, let's talk about the budget. Um, (laughs) The Australian uh, federal government uh, has uh, handed down its 2017-18 budget. And, well, you know, same old, same old. Some are saying it's a Liberal government, the best Labor budget that's been handed down in years. (laughs) <laughs> Indeed, that's right. Could well be. Mm. But what's in it for us, Fred, or for you more specifically? Yeah, so astronomers are very encouraged by this budget, Andrew, and it's because it incorporates um, some news that we've been hoping for, not just for one year or two years, but for the past 20 years. Because uh, for more than 20 years, Australian astronomers have been lobbying for Australia to become a partner in the European Southern Observatory. So European Southern Observatory, based in Europe, of course, its headquarters actually are in one of the suburbs of Munich, a place called Garching, uh, but its telescopes are down in Chile. Uh, so its telescopes are Southern Hemisphere, which is why it's called the European Southern Observatory. And Australia, uh, in particular, Australian astronomers, have argued for many years 
that um, it would be strategically very valuable for astronomy in Australia for us to be members of this European Southern Observatory Consortium. And indeed, that's what's happened in this budget. So the, uh, the budget includes new funding that will allow that partnership to take place. It's a 10-year partnership. It's not quite full membership of the European Southern Observatory, which is a very, very expensive proposition, uh, but it gives us 10 years to uh, actually enjoy the benefits of membership before committing to full membership, perhaps in 2027. The the, the reasons why this is so important to Australian astronomers are, first of all, that it gives us access to facilities that are much bigger and much more powerful than anything we have here in Australia. And I'm talking now particularly about visible light telescopes, what we call optical telescopes, mm -hmm. telescopes that just use ordinary visible light but use very uh, sensitive detectors and instruments uh, to measure that light. The uh, European Southern Observatory has four very large telescopes, which are actually called the Very Large Telescope. Yes, sorry. Because that's the best name they could think of. <laughs> Would you, wouldn't you have thought it would be Il Telescopio Grande Galileo? Or yes. Das große Telescope Frau, Josef Fraunhofer or something like that. No, it's the no, Very Large Telescope. It's just the and big it, thing. The big thing, yes. It's like the <laughs> TGV, the, the, the very fast train. Uh, so, so the... The Very Large Telescope, situated at a place called Cerro Paranal in, um, in northern Chile, which has exquisite atmospheric conditions. And this instrument really consists of four separate telescopes, each with a, an 8.2-metre diameter mirror, which can either be used um, individually, as they actually they usually are, mm. or combined together uh, to do uh, something we call interferometry, so that you've effectively got four of these giant telescopes. So together they, they represent the world's biggest telescope. Just to put that into context, the biggest telescope in Australia is the Anglo-Australian Telescope, which is operated by the organisation that I work for, the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And that telescope has a mirror 3.9 metres in diameter, so less than half the diameter of just one of these VLT, or Very Large Telescope, facilities in Chile. So um, I, I would not go so far as to say that with these very big telescopes, uh, bigger is better. Bigger tends to be better in telescopes because the bigger your mirror is, the further you can see. But the Anglo-Australian telescope has particular attributes which allow it to uh, observe very, very effectively, very efficiently. So um, we, we have a system that allows us to look at 400 stars or galaxies simultaneously, whereas 20 years ago, you, you really would have had to do them one at a time. In mm. fact, I was using that facility over the weekend that's just gone, and in one single night, we managed to observe uh, well over 3,500 stars, which would have been completely impossible two or three decades ago. So the, the instruments on a telescope are really what make it worth its salt. We're not saying that the Very Large Telescope is deficient in its instruments, it's not, but we here in Australia do have wonderful instrumentation uh, on the AAT, the Anglo-Australian Telescope. Nevertheless, it's very important for Australian astronomers to have access to these even bigger facilities, and that's what this strategic partnership with ESO, the European Southern Observatory, will give us. What you may ask, and I can hear this question forming on your lips as we speak. 
<laughs> Good thing I'll, t- I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd look, I can read your mind, Andrew. Um, what are the Europeans going to get out of it? Well, yes. they will get some money out of it because there's a subscription, but they'll get more than that. The reason why European astronomers have been dead keen for Australia to join in this consortium is because of what I've just mentioned. We in Australia produce um, instruments that can be attached to telescopes, which are second to none. Mm. We um, And I'm, I'm kind of bragging on behalf of all of Australian astronomy here. We, we really punch far above our weight when it comes to devising and developing new and very clever instrumentation. It's just something that we've been very good at. Often it's because it's been necessity. You know, we've, we've had low budgets and wanted to find the very best ways of getting the maximum amount of data from our telescopes. So we've been clever about the instruments that we built. And that has taken us onto the world stage. Uh, the Australian Astronomical Observatory and indeed the uh, the ANU, the um, uh, Australian National University, their research school of astronomy and astrophysics has done what we've done too, built instruments for other telescopes overseas. So what's happened is the overseas astronomers have beaten a pathway to Australia to procure their instruments to attach to their fancy big telescopes. And that's why this European-Australian uh, deal is such a great symbiosis between two sets of organizations that have got things that the other one wants. Um, you know, we want the time on big telescopes. The Europeans want our expertise in instrumentation. And so that's why it's such a good news story. Fantastic news. And at a time when we're just seeing cut after cut after cut and tax increases and tax increases that they say aren't tax increases, but they will be and uh, all that sort of thing. It's it's good to have new money poured into uh, into something like astronomy, where it um, it uh, usually uh, passes you by. Fred, so fantastic news! Congratulations. That's uh, thank you very much, Andrew. Just one footnote to that, because mm. y- you know people listening to this might say, well, what good is that going to do? Uh, it cheers up the astronomers, but what else does it do? And in fact. The great benefit of this kind of funding is that it feeds directly into what astronomy is really good at in a, in a broader sense, and that is attracting people to science. And in particular, school students who might be thinking about what their careers should be, if you talk to them about black holes or uh, dinosaur killing asteroids or things of that sort, they are tempted very much by astronomy and, and the, the sciences generally. Uh, that's one of the spin-offs of astronomy. It's one of the reasons why governments invest in it. One of the other ones is that it has this push towards technological, um, uh, technological not superiority, but expertise. We have um, actually, in the world of astronomy, pushed the technology to its limits in the sense that um, we now have uh, devices, for example, the, the image sensor in your mobile phone, the thing that lets you use it as a camera, actually started its life as a, as a detector for astronomical instruments. So there's very strong spin-offs in the world of technology that come from astronomy. So those are just two of the reasons why uh, governments do fund uh, what might seem like esoteric pursuits such as astronomy. That's just a postscript, Andrew, just so that your listeners and my listeners know that it's actually all in a good cause. It's good money well spent. Good money well yes, spent. Indeed. That's right. Mm. All right. Thank you, Fred. And uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Dr. Fred Watson. Three, two, one. 
Space nuts. Next up, Fred, we're going to look at something that we, well, haven't looked at before because we couldn't see it. But now NASA and ESA, the European Space Agency, through the Hubble Telescope, have looked across a vast amount of space. We're talking mega, mega space between here and there to look at something that um, has not been seen before, basically. So um, please tell. <laughs> OK, so the target of this uh, set of images that have been released by uh, by NASA uh, and ESA, the European Space Agency, those two organisations together run the Hubble Space Telescope, it's uh, of a cluster of galaxies. So remember, galaxies are um, huge aggregations of hundreds of billions of stars, but they themselves tend to cluster together. And this particular cluster is a very rich cluster. It contains actually hundreds of galaxies, each of which, each of which contains hundreds of billions of stars. Mm. So there's a lot of stars out there, but because it's six billion light years away, uh, we only see the galaxies. We don't see the individual stars. Um, this cluster has a name. It's called Abel 370. Abel is A-B-E-L-L. -L. It is the name of a scientist who I knew personally, actually, who, who um, catalogued clusters of galaxies. His name was George Abel. He was an absolutely delightful man. He worked for a while at the Royal Observatory in, e in Edinburgh when I was there. That's where he did his work on uh, cataloging these clusters. And so this is the 370th uh, cluster of galaxies in the Abel catalogue. So if uh, our listeners want to, to, to uh, put the words Abel 370 or the word and the number Abel 370 into their search engine. They will find a, a fantastic image of this cluster of galaxies that has just been released by, uh, by NASA and ESA. Why is it special? Well, because as exactly as you just said, the image reveals things that we have not seen before. Um, the the overwhelming impression when you look at this is of just a, a frame full of galaxies. There are blobs of light everywhere. Mm. And as I said, this is a very, very rich cluster of galaxies. There's yeah, one I'm, bright I'm, star in it. I'm looking I at the photo now. At yeah, I'm yeah. looking at the photo now. And it, it, it just, it, it's a, probably a very basic, dumb description, but it looks just like a, a, a cluster of glowing frisbees. <laughs> that's the way Actually, I would describe I, it. I think that's a, a very eloquent description, if I may say so, Andrew. <laughs> Glowing frisbees actually is pretty good because that's more or less what it looks like. Mm. Um, the, the, the bright star that you might be able to see with, uh, with these, this cross pattern on it, which is something we call diffraction spikes, they're an, an artifact of the telescope, which we understand well. But the galaxies are everything else in the image. Yeah. But what you might also notice uh, if you have a look at this image, a strange curved... Uh, patterns of light, uh, things that look as though somebody's um, taken little dots of white paint and swirled them around. Yeah, I, the can, I can see the, that. Yeah. Cluster. yeah. And what they are is um, the things that have not been seen before. These are the images of galaxies that are far more distant than Abel 370. Abel 370, remember, is at about six billion light years oh, away. So we're, we're, looking, seeing, we're looking way beyond you're looking way beyond. That's right. The, right. The, the, and in fact, you're looking probably the same distance again, perhaps out to 12 billion light years. Wow. And you're seeing these strange little streaks of light. And the reason they look like that is because the 
the mass of the foreground galaxy cluster, which is what Abel 370 is, it's in the foreground, mm. uh, what it does, the mass actually distorts the space around it and makes, makes it behave like a, a, a very crude lens. In fact, you can actually mimic the kind of lens that it's, uh, it's, it's um, replicating uh, by looking through the bottom of a wine glass because it's a very similar effect. If you look through the bottom of a wine glass, don't do it while it's full of wine, of course. Uh, but when you have a look through the bottom, you will see uh, distant, uh, uh, distant scenes which are um, sort of s spread out into this kind of circular pattern, just like these images of distant galaxies uh, imaged uh, um, into the, in this way by the gravity of Abel 370. And what that does is allows astronomers to see galaxies that would otherwise be invisible. It's a kind of natural telescope that the foreground cluster creates. And ha having a close look at these streaks of light uh, formed by the, the galaxy cluster in the foreground, um, a close look at them will tell astronomers a lot about the very distant universe. It's actually how we have observed some of the most distant galaxies known. So this is a classic example of what we call gravitational lensing. It's also stunningly beautiful, and I would encourage all Space Nuts listeners to go off and have a look at this wonderful image of Abel 370. Yes, and, and being able to see so far with such clarity still boggles my mind. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope has certainly made a huge difference in our uh, efforts to learn more about what's out there. It's just incredible. Indeed, that's right. And mm. considering that when it was launched, uh, it's had the most perfect mirror ever made, but made to the wrong prescription. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and actually, uh, it was three years before that was fixed by sending up a kind of contact lens for the mirror. But yeah. since then, uh, astronomers have never looked back. The Hubble telescope represents one of the best investments, I think, ever made in astronomy. I, uh, I can't disagree with you there, Fred. <laughs> Very good. good. Can't wait to see more. And, and, and obviously, it's a part of the, uh, a part of the universe that uh, will get a lot more attention in the, in the very near future. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. What a matchup! And what a team, Mike. Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax and $10 activation fee. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on our T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Uh, finally, Fred, we're going to do something we, we haven't done on the podcast before. We've done it on Facebook and Twitter and other places, but uh, we have a question from uh, the audience, uh, the entire audience, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> hello, Dr. Watson and Mr. Dunkley. Um, sorry, didn't mean to laugh. I, I have a question in regards to uh, orbits, especially the moon. It's my understanding that an orbiting object is essentially falling back to Earth, but the arc of fall is just so that it never actually collides with the Earth. Uh, the moon orbits the Earth, yet it gradually is moving farther away. I played around with the PHET, the FET simulation at the University of Colorado. That's Boba FET. Uh, however, there appeared to be little change. Uh, in truth, my patience ran out after a 10,000-day simulation. I'm going to say straight up, it's not long enough. Uh, my question <laughs> is, is the moon breaking orbit because its arc is slightly above falling, or is it still stabilising? That... 
And I'm very curious about how we attempt to colonise Mars, if it's possible. I know you already looked at this. However, I really enjoy some more uh, dedicated, uh, some more time dedicated to this possibility. I really like the idea of sailing the solar winds. I wonder if the universe has the doldrums. Uh, kind regards, Petra. Well, first part of the question is about whether or not the moon is falling or slightly above falling, and that's causing it to move away. What's the answer, Fred? In <laughs> One word or less. <laughs> One word. Okay. The answer is yes. Um, so there you go. You got it in one word. No, um, what you said was uh, was correct, that a 10,000-day simulation really is not long enough to see any change in the way the moon's orbit uh, behaves. Um, if you look over a million years, which would be a 365 million day simulation, then you would start to see a difference because the moon is indeed moving away from the Earth. We know that from Apollo uh, measurements. The Apollo astronauts, I think on three of the missions, left what we call um, laser reflectors. So they did the have time to do something when they weren't playing golf. When they weren't playing golf, that's right. Yeah, they, they, they dumped all this equipment on the moon, <laughs> littering the lunar surface. But those laser reflectors are what allow us to measure the distance to the moon with a pre precision of actually a few millimetres, which is quite astonishing when you think about it. Uh, and it's because of that that we know that the moon is drifting away from something like 3.6 centimetres per year. Um, so Petra's question is about why that should be. She's absolutely right that when something is in orbit, it is indeed falling back to the Earth, but it doesn't ever reach the Earth because the Earth is curved, so the, the rate of fall is never enough to drop it back onto the Earth's surface. So mm. that's absolutely correct, and that is also the case in, in the... Sorry, that's also the situation in the case of the Moon. But there is one thing that is happening to the moon that probably these simulations would not necessarily show. And that is that the moon, of course, is raising tides on the Earth. Um, that uh, is something we all know about because we see two high tides uh, a day uh, pretty well everywhere on the Earth. But what is not quite so obvious is that tides are raised on the land surface of the Earth as well. The land of the Earth moves up and down by about one foot, um, three, uh, 300 millimetres thereabouts every, every well, twice a day. It's the same as wow. the ocean tides. Uh, okay. It's about a foot. You can't feel it, of course, because it's so slow. It's not like a, a big acceleration. But the fact that the moon is exerting these enormous forces on our planet means that the Earth is actually sucking energy from the moon. Um, and that would that would make you think that the moon was actually going to fall down towards the Earth. Uh, but in fact, it doesn't. And that's because this, what we call the tidal bulge, the, the bit of the Earth that is stretched towards the moon is actually lagging as the Earth rotates. And I'm probably, this is the kind of thing you really need a diagram. And I can see puzzled looks emerging on your face there. <laughs> can you just. see that? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Puzzlement, furrowed brows and things of that sort. So I, I, mm. I'm clearly not explaining this well. But well, if, you probably are, but I'm just so, so thick. No, 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 I, I, you really need to, to sit down with a whiteboard or something and do this. The bottom line is that the, the, um, the, the, the gravity of the moon makes the Earth bulge out slightly. But because the Earth is turning, that bulge is carried forward slightly in the direction of rotation. Oh. 
I get and it. What that then does is provides an acceleration on the moon. So the bulge is also dragging the moon around with it. And it gives an acceleration to the moon, which actually pushes it further out in its orbit. So the uh, acceleration of the moon is real. We know that because we can see the, by the measurements made by these laser reflectors that the, uh, the moon is drifting away. It's a very slow process, but the ultimate situation will be uh, in probably 10 to 12 billion years time, by which time Space Nuts might no longer be a podcast anymore. It's probably- I think we'll be up to episode 50 something billion by then. <laughs> That's quite right. Um, in 10 billion years, something like that. They say it will be 50-something billion at one a week. Wow, I got something right. You did. <laughs> so um, what will happen is that the moon will have drifted to a place where it is in equilibrium with the Earth. It will go around the Earth once in, if I remember rightly, it's 47 days. I think that's the figure. It'll be about half a million kilometres from the Earth. But the key thing is that the Earth's rotation will also have slowed down so that the Earth constantly keeps the same face towards the moon. So the month and the day will be the same length of time. And from half the Earth, you won't be able to see the moon. It'll only be on one side of the Earth. Wow. Um, so that's the end product, which is a long way of saying that the answer to Petra's question is yes. Yes, um, indeed. Now, let me just right. very briefly dwell on her other questions. One, yes, colonising Mars. Yeah, colonising Mars, you know, it may be possible in many... Uh, I would guess many, many centuries. My belief is that it's a bad idea. I think for many, many reasons, we really have to fix things here on Earth. Maybe we will have um, uh, ex expeditionary colonies on Mars, a bit like we have in Antarctica. But the idea mm. of using it as a lifeboat for Earth's troubled um, pollution record, I think is a, a non-starter. Uh, as I said, I think we've got to clean up our own planet before we go trashing another planet. There are things about Mars that we simply don't understand. It may well be that Mars has its own indigenous microbial life, and the last thing we would want to do would be to go and destroy that. So uh, that's the bottom line there. And finally, uh, sailing the solar winds. Well, actually, it's sailing the radiation of the sun that uh, we we will see with Breakthrough Starshot, which is one of the programs that is looking at that possibility perhaps 10 or 20 years down the track. Uh, does the universe have the doldrums? Well, only when you're listening to star, to space, yeah. to space nuts. I nearly, <laughs> I nearly said the wrong podcast then, didn't I? Yeah, uh, yes, you will be very angry. <laughs> very nearly said the wrong one. Uh, only when you're listening to space nuts. But Petra, thank you very much for listening and thanks for your question and keep them coming. Absolutely, indeed, yes, we love to hear from you. Fred, thank you. It's nice to talk to you again. And you too, Andrew, and we'll speak again very soon, I hope. I, I'm sure that's true. Uh, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and thank you for joining us once again on Space Nuts, the podcast that can be heard through Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Audio Boom, Stitcher, uh, DCFM 88.9 in Dubbo, New South Wales, 10 o'clock Thursday nights, uh, we're everywhere. And we, we love that you uh, are enjoying it. So please keep in touch. And we'll catch you again next week on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.
Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.